This is Channel 253. In this episode of Crossing Division. The bandwidth and the desire to go to teach your kids to stay home and teach your kids and you feel it's unsafe to send them to school, you should absolutely have that. Right. We should have the resources in place for you to pivot and be like, okay, you know, I'm, and I've got several friends who are like, I'm just going to sit my kids down at the table. They're on task. They can do this. They, you know, I've got this schedule for them and, and they should absolutely have the resources to do that. We're finding out kids aren't immune. They just, it, it impacts them differently right now. They might have more and I should say they might, they might have more mild symptoms, um, but they also might not, you know, and I, it's, it's weird to me to hear our society, which is supposed to be this great caring society kind of saying, well, only old people die. Kids don't. Well, right. there's a lot more between, <laughs> between living life and being dead. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, Go to alaskaair.com. Hi, this is Evelyn Lopez. Today on Crossing Division, we have a little bit of a twist on our normal episodes. We're going to talk about schools to open or not to reopen. And I have two parents that I'm going to talk to today. Um, The first is a friend of mine in Tacoma, Adrienne Stewart. Uh, well, I'll let her introduce herself in a second. And Adrian had actually approached me a couple of weeks ago and said, you know, Evelyn, on your different podcasts, would you be at all interested in talking to a parent who's in favor of reopening schools? And I thought, that is a rather interesting perspective. Yes, I would be interested in that. Uh, and so we're going to talk to Adrian first for about half an hour. And then we've got a, a, another friend, uh, Tamara Jones, who's going to come on and talk about the concerns of parents with reopening schools. I'm guessing that we will find there's quite a bit of commonality between both perspectives, but I think it's really going to help us sort through some of the challenges that parents are facing and that schools are facing to talk about these things. So, Adrienne, why don't you start by introducing yourself? Well, thank you, Evelyn, for having me, and thank you for... um, taking a chance on this idea of having this conversation. I think it's an, a conversation that people are itching to have and um, that are wanting to kind of met out the nuances uh, of not only conflict within their own selves, but, you know, with friends, with neighbors um, about this really um, important issue. And with all important issues, there's a lot of sides to it, right? And um, I'm an attorney by training. I'd like to say I'm a uh, recovering attorney, but, um, you know, I I still have that mindset of kind of looking at um, these dynamic problems through a lot of different filters, and I enjoy doing that. I'm first and foremost, a parent um, of two of the world's most fabulous kids. Um, Jack is six and Charlie's three. And um, I've been really vocal um, and transparent on my own Facebook page about the challenges that our family has had to go through just to get our kids into school in the first place. And this was pre-pandemic. Okay. That's important to point out that you have been um, 
yeah, you have been really advocating hard for your kids even before there was COVID-19, you know, uh, so, and tell us a little bit about that. Tell us about um, sort of some of the ways in which we sort of, as a school system and as a society, we're just not meeting the needs or even coming close to trying to meet the needs of kids who have, you know, special challenges or special needs in their health and education. Thank you. Well, uh, your show is not long enough for me to exhaust the list of the ways that we're failing our kids, right? But um, suffice it to say that, you know, we, from the start, we segregate our kids. If you've got a disability, if your kiddo is diagnosed with a disability uh, between birth and three, which is when um, most kiddos, especially with developmental disabilities, are diagnosed, you'll go into the birth to three process or birth to three programs administered um, through the counties. And um, there you'll get a lot of therapeutic support. You can have an in-home educator come to your home, an occupational therapist, a physical therapist. They come to your home. They give you coaching. They talk about, you know, all the ways that you can support your kiddo. And we know those programs work. They're so vital. Um, and so you've got these really amazing wraparound services until your, until your child's third birthday. Literally on the third birthday, they call you up and say, we're all done. Goodbye. And we're handing you over to the school system. Okay. Now, there's a couple of cliffs that you as a parent will know about if you've got a kiddo with disabilities, right? There's that three-year-old cliff where uh, you're handed off from the birth to three system to the school system. And that process can look very different depending on where you live, right? We've got 295 school districts in this state um, and 39 counties. So you've got to know that the handoffs aren't always warm. Uh, Parents stumble upon these services. They are explained in a way that is unclear and unhelpful. And so, but they have um, a lot of times experienced the birth to three services. And so I think they come to, you come to expect the schools to kind of give you that wraparound support and services, right? But the problem is, is we say, okay, we don't have universal preschool in this state, meaning that we don't serve all preschoolers. It's only kids with disabilities, or if you're lucky, an ECAP or a Head Start program where you have to have income uh, qualifications in order to be admitted to those programs. Okay, so you're looking at kids with disabilities and kids typically from marginalized communities are getting those preschool supports. And so right away, you've got the class with, of kids with disabilities, and you've got the class of kids who are poor. Mm-hmm. And those classes are down the hall. They're segregated away from other kids in the school. They have completely, totally separate funding streams. So it's easier for the schools to just only fund those separate classrooms and this separate teacher, and they can keep everything clean in that way. Well, then you come. And as your kids get older, they continue on that segregated track. They go into special education. They stay in special education. Special education services in this state 
that, that, that it becomes a place. It becomes a dumping ground, right? For kids who have behaviors or kids who aren't getting the services that they need, or, you know, honestly, for kids that are, um, you know, for whatever reason, having um, trouble, um, you know, in the mainstream, quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, uh general education setting. Okay. So we keep those kids segregated. And what we're finding is that's really problematic for, um, for as they become older and, and get into adulthood, you know, then you've got transition programs for kids with developmental disabilities that are available to them until they're 21. And that final cliff at 21, you get into the adult services. And if you think that the education system in our state is a barren wasteland of services for kids with disabilities, and it is, wait till you get to the adult services. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that's, I just want to give you, or I want to give you some context and yeah. listeners some context for that. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so I have been fighting for Charlie and for Jack to get into the most inclusive setting possible. And a lot of parents don't know to do that. And they don't know they can do that because the school sits you down and says, here's this class available to you. Most of the kids in here are on IEPs. So meaning they have other um, learning disorders or, or what have you. And but all the science says that what's best for all learners, not just kids with disabilities, what's best for all learners is to have a variation, a variety of kids around you too. Some to help model, uh, some to some who can uh, learn from other kids in a variety of ways, you know, like our char- our Charlie, for instance, has a bit of a speech delay, but you know, he could he I, I put my he can go climb a mountain, you know. Mm-hmm. Right now, he's a mountain goat. I've given birth to a mountain goat. Um, he is incredibly talented, you know, with his physically. Um, so he has a lot of gifts to share too. Uh, you know, the school calls these programs. You know, the the kids who aren't on IEPs, they call them peer models. Mm-hmm. And I take exception to that, right? Mm-hmm. Because my kid has some modeling to do of his own, right? right? It's not just those other kids who aren't on IEP, so need IEP supports, able to model. And that is the mentality that our school systems perpetuate in kids and in families all throughout mm-hmm. high school. And, you know, in my work, then, you know, we've got, you, you sit a, a parent of a 21-year-old, down and say, okay, your student is graduating high school. They have disabilities. They've been in this segregated setting for 21 years of their life. Let's talk about getting them a job out in the community. And the parent looks at the school personnel and is like, what are you thinking? My kid can't do any of that. Mm -hmm. And it is devastating the impacts that that makes on, you know, kids with this young, young adults with disabilities. They, um, uh, you know, obviously they've got an unemployment rate of about 70%, you know, people disability. I mean, it's just, Mm -hmm. so I just see at the heart of our, matter here, this segregation that happens. If so when you have something devastating like this pandemic come along. Yes. Um, and we say, okay, well, we're going to close everything. Mm-hmm. 
we're just going to close everything. Um, And we'll get to a little bit later, I'm sure, why K through 12 education isn't on the governor's list of essential services. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, when you do that, you devastate an already disproportionately impacted community Mm -hmm. when you take away those services for kids and families with disabilities. I I can't understate it enough. And I, you know, I want to make it clear. We have the ability to go and hire tutors and private therapists. If I wanted to send my kid um, to a private daycare or a private school or what have you, I could do that. I've got the resources to do that. And so I am speaking out because I am one of the few people left that I know that has the bandwidth and the resources to continue screaming from the mountaintops that this is not working for 99% of people. Okay. And this plan of going, you know, all online or all remote is predicated upon at least one parent in the household quitting their paid job. Mm-hmm. And doing this full time. Mm-hmm. And that's the disconnect that I I see out there is that part isn't being discussed. You're asking me to be an unpaid teacher, an unpaid paraeducator, speech pathologist, physical therapist, occupational therapist. You're asking me to take on five new different roles and or quit my, my paid job. Right. Well, let me, let me stop there and ask you about this because I think you're touching on a couple of really important things. And one of them is, you know, if we want to get to someday a a state, a society where we have better integration of all kinds of people in the workplace, in society, it starts in school, right? You know, you have to, we know this racially, it's yes. no different in the in the disability ability yes. world. You, if you grow up in a classroom with people of other races, you will not have as deep a systemic racist response to life in yourself. If you grow up with friends who are disabled or have different talents, you will see the world and you will interact with the world in a different way. So segregating out these children hurts us as a society yes and 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 that's aside from the fact that then you know what we'll eventually get to is is the the profound impact this is going to have on particularly i think without data but i still think it women you know working women and how um and how we at least have to acknowledge that we are saying we are sacrificing all of our um, gender achievements and our equality achievements and our diversity achievements because we haven't been able to come up with any other idea other than say, guess y'all have to go back to 1960. That's right. And that's a, that's a massive policy failure. Yes, it is. It's, it is. And, um, until I started talking about it, you know, I felt really isolated. I, was thinking that I was the only one in my, you know, peer group really. Um, There was one or two other people who I think we have common friends with who are pretty outspoken about it. But, you know, um, 
since we um, filed a lawsuit, actually, um, I have had so many parents across the state reach out to me and say, thank you. Thank you for doing this. You know, thank you for just speaking up and, and fighting this. This is, we can't do this. This is unsustainable. Um, and so I, I do think that there is, excuse me, a real, a real risk of permanent loss of ground uh, mm-hmm. for so many people, obviously for moms who work both inside and outside the home. Um, and, uh, you know, for those who um, have uh, struggled during this entire pandemic, you know, I remind people in March, we were just going to close for like a few weeks. Right. right? And nobody knew like, we were, you know, maybe we'd come back. Um, and when it became clear that they actually just closed for good and we don't have a plan for if or when we come back, um, we didn't get communication from the district. We didn't get good communication from our schools. We had no idea what was coming on. And then, you know, in May, they started like sending out paper packets, you know, to kids to like do to just uh, get some sort of education. Um, well, of course that doesn't work for most kids with disabilities, you know, especially when, um, you take away their paraeducator support. You know, I've been really vocal about this loss with Jack because he has a paraeducator in his IEP. And by the way, can I just put a pin in the fact that basically all IEPs have been thrown out the window, right? (laughs) Um, as far as I can tell, like those are legal documents that we're just going to kind of ignore and, um, we're just going to pretend don't exist. And I was told that I could have a pair at Jack could have a paraeducator when he was in the school building. Mm-hmm. But okay. he's not in the school building. Well, nobody's in the school building, right. like, you know, and so they actually laid off two thirds of the paraeducators oh. In our district, at the same meeting, they gave the superintendent a $9,000 a year raise, right? And so that, to me, was a real wake-up call of how disconnected the folks that are making these policies are from those of us who are impacted by them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so um, at that point, I started just reaching out to other people. Uh, You know, I was paralyzed. I was lost. I was grieving. I'm still kind of in different... (laughs) states of those feelings. And, um, you know, quite organically, I was, you know, mentioning the attorney that we had been working with just to get our kids pre-pandemic a free and appropriate public education in a least restrictive environment. Um, And I said, what can we do? What can we do? We have to figure out what we can do. And we dug and figured out that basically what happened is that the State Board of Education used their rulemaking process to redefine a law. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) And for those of us who aren't policy wonks um, and um, don't understand why that's a problem, Um, I can just explain that that's 
not how laws are made. Laws, you know, the, this definition lives in statute. The definition of a basic education lives in statute. Okay, we elected people to go to Olympia and say, make these laws for us. You know, that's why we vote. And they did, and they, you know, define basic education. Basic education is also the instructional hour portion of it is also um, protected by McCleary, which a lot of people will know was a big lawsuit about 10 years ago to fully fund basic education in the state. So state agencies, um, for the most part, aren't elected. These, These folks aren't elected, right? So we have had Um, a group of folks at a state agency um, say we're going to basically with an emergency rulemaking overturn a law. Mm -hmm. We're going to rewrite this RCW, this revised code of Washington. And when we realized that they had done that, we said, wow, we, this, I mean, Think about the precedence that this sets for all other state agencies. That was what I was just, I was just, you know, and it's, and it's important for people to understand this and, um, and Adrian, I can kind of get into our policy wonky hats over this, but here's the thing. Agencies are part of the executive branch. So remember three branches of government, legislative, they make the laws, they're elected by the people to do so. Executive fall under the governor. They sort of carry out the laws, you know, the legislature says one thing, but they don't actually, you know, come up with all the details of how it's going to work. The agency does that. And that's great. And the agency does have rulemaking authority to sort of explain the rules, fill in the gaps, you know, give some examples of how it's supposed to work. But the an agency cannot make new law and they cannot um, redefine something that is defined in the law. So that and it's a problem. I mean, in a pandemic, you're you're you know, probably willing to, courts are probably willing to sort of give a little bit of leeway, but it's really important because uh, in the future, you know, we will not be in this pandemic forever, and it it really isn't supposed to work this way. Agencies are not supposed to be making the laws, as Adrian says. They are not elected. Uh, they They, even when they're doing a very, very good job, it's not the same as the legislature. That's right. And I think you made a really valid point, you know, uh, as a parent, um, you know, watching my school, my, you know, Jack's school do the best they could, you know, with what information they had um, and the direction they had. um, I was at first like, oh my gosh, okay, yeah, let's, this sounds out of control. It's too dangerous to send my kids. And I think it was the right decision to close Mm -hmm. schools, you know, and let's get this thing under control for a few weeks. And then I'll send my kids back in like May or something, right? right? When we've got PPE, when we've got a plan, when we're keeping teachers safe, when we're, you know, we kind of have a handle on things, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, as time went on and as, you know, I watched my kid regress and I watched, you know, no services coming. um, I watched no give from the school district. I begged them for a paraeducator. You know, I was like, I will drop Jack off at school. I will do everything that we can to like keep him safe, you know, and keep you safe. And, but the paraeducator is essential to helping him access his curriculum. It is guaranteed to him in the IEP 
And the school district was like, nope, not doing it. Nope, not doing it. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was like, okay, <laughs> like this, you are ignoring the fundamental truth of working parents in that I am unable to at once work from home and do my job while simultaneously teaching my kid. And now I'm being asked, all parents are being asked to do that with maybe multiple children, you know, multiple children with differing needs on an IEP, even kids who don't have disabilities. You know, this, this lawsuit, I know in the press a lot it is being dubbed as a special education lawsuit, you know, where we're just going to carve out just the kids with disabilities and, and, you know, get them services. That's not it, right? Mm -hmm. They, they redefined basic education, which all kids in this state are entitled to, and this suit would help all kids. Um, So about the lawsuit, what is your goal in final and what do you hope will come out of it? Well, a few things. First of all, I want to preserve the definition of a basic education. And if we want to talk about as a state redefining what a basic education looks like, let's have that conversation out in the open, not in an emergency rulemaking process, which I know you know. Um, You know, they send it, they whip it up, send it to the code revisor's office, and it is rule that day. You know, Mm -hmm. like it is immediate. And, you know, even when you send a rule to the governor, it's not going to get, you know, go into effect until mid-June or what have you. Um, So uh, there is really no opportunity for the public to have notice or to be heard, right? And to let's have this conversation as a community. I think that's my, at least my second goal. I've got two other co-plaintiffs on here, I think, who share the same goals. Their kids also have um, students with disabilities and, um, you know, excuse me, so the the preservation of basic education and then, uh, yeah, making sure that um, at least a a defensible process is followed to completely upend basic education in our state, you know, because along with Along with this proposal, we don't, there's no stipends given to parents who are going to have to drop out of the workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, they're being, they're being charged with being the tech guru. I don't know about you, but I am not a tech guru um, to figure out, you know, all of the platforms, all of the, you know, interfacing that they're, the teachers, the teachers, mm-hmm. I'm on you know, pages with teachers and paraeducators, they're not getting trained. They're not getting information. You're telling me that's going to happen in the next two and a half weeks. Um, So, you know, our real goal is to make sure that, you know, we've got, um, we've got a plan in place to Mm -hmm. actually provide options to people. And so one option should absolutely be if you have the bandwidth and the desire to go to teach your kids to stay home and teach your kids and you feel it's unsafe to send them to school, you should absolutely have that, Mm -hmm. right? We should have the resources in place for you to pivot and be like, okay, you know, I'm, and I've got several friends who are like, I'm just going to sit my kids down at the table. They're on task. They can do this. They, you know, I've got this schedule for them and, and they should absolutely have the resources to do that. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
the school districts, I think, uh, in large part, agreed with that approach because they all had these hybrid plans that they were presenting, right? And it was scary and messy, and they were like, we don't know, there's going to be an A and B schedule in two days here, two days there. But there was at least an attempt to say, yes, you know, we, we understand that in-person learning is critical. It is part of the basic definition of education in our state, right? Is having that in person. And, um, and so we understand that we appreciate that we're going to, you know, do our best to um, make, make this model work while keeping people as safe as, as possible. Right. Um, There was also ideas that around, you know, having all the high school kids go online, right, and shifting like middle school kids to the high school so that, that, you know, we can have more space or what have you. Um, You know, I think one of the main things that I hope comes out of this lawsuit is that we sit down as a community and say, here's the problem we're trying to solve for. Right. Because if you're going to ask me to go and put my kid in a cramped daycare, (laughs) then your real issue can't be space. Right. The real problem can't be space if you're going to ask me to go put my kid in a cramped daycare. So what is the real issue? Because if it's space you know, we can, we can get creative. There's been the the hospitality industry has said, Hey, we've got all these conference rooms that aren't being used. Why don't you come hold school here? We've got an REI facility up in Bellevue. They're walking away from how many high schools can we get in there? You know, so if we, if the real issue is, Hey, everyone, we need to have this conversation about space because we can't have more than 15 kids to a classroom. We've got to be able to sanitize and whatever at the end of the day, Um, you know, then, then let's figure this out. But, you know, in my view, there hasn't been this, you know, open dialogue about how we approach this as a community. And we've got a lot of really smart and talented people in this state. And I just think that it's a waste to not utilize those people um, in a way that would benefit us all and to to open up schools. So, um, you know, I may be naive in thinking that that is a possible outcome, but I'm hopeful all the same. That sounds good. Well, it is frustrating, you know, even as a bystander to realize that the school districts didn't, don't appear to have engaged in really effective problem solving during the time that, you know, the schools have been closed and we've been closed for, um, you know, five months now. Right. Right. And, and, and to be fair, it's not just Tacoma. I'm hearing from people all over the state that are like, my school board does not listen to me. I showed up, I told them my problems and they just kind of shrug their shoulders, you know, and they say, we're sure sorry, um, but we can't figure out what to do. And so, you know, I, um, I think we can do better. I think we can do better. I think we can do better than the schools saying, you know what, we're, we're still going to charge you $850 in tuition um, every month for your preschooler to sit yeah, down I in front of us. Talk about that. <laughs> Tell me about this. So background for people, uh, and I actually posted this out on social media, and I'll put it in the show notes too, but 
um, Adrian just received a, a letter from Tacoma Public Schools and other, I have other um, friends who have kids in other schools. So it's not just this one school, but every preschool program that's being run by the schools sent the, a letter out saying, you know, uh, we're going to go to some sort of distance preschool remote learning preschool with your little your small under five three-year-old your three-year-old on the computer apparently um but you'll still need to pay us 850 dollars a month for this because this is how we're going to pay our salaries and if you don't if you decide this is ridiculous then you lose your place in preschool so how did you feel about getting that Oh, I mean, I knew it was coming. I've yeah. known since April. I've been waiting for this letter since April. And I was like, that, I mean, that is, that's what, that's what they're going to say. They're going to say, we don't know when we're going to open, but you'll need to um, keep paying us $850 a month, you know? And again, Evelyn, I just want to say like, I, to the parents out there that are scraping by that are at once being asked to quit one of their jobs, assuming that there's a two parent, two income household to begin with, which is a very big assumption. But to the parents that are don't have the capacity to just lop off an income and be okay and not experience, you know, housing instability, food insecurity, or what have you, like I see you and I am appalled. I'm incensed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, I don't even know. I mean, do I disenroll my kids? Like, tell me what to do. If you're not going to teach my kids, do I disenroll them? Like, that is the ethical question right. that is kicking around for me. Yeah. Well, it's hard to know because, you know, if you had some reason for feeling confident that come January, there was going to be a, a um, process in place so that you could resume something, something like a school experience, you might be willing to say, okay, well, that's three more months. I'm not happy about it, but I'm going to plug along. But Right. There's no end in sight. There's no end in sight. There's no end in sight. And they, you know, the, going back to this rule that the State Board of Education filed, they said that we're just going to do it for the entire school year. Mm-hmm. So if that rule is upheld, they have no incentive to figure it out and to bring kids back in person. Hmm. That's amazing. It is. And it's, it's a travesty for our Hmm. whole community. It is a, and this is, I think the thing is just speaking to someone who, who does not have children, this impacts all of us anyway. I mean, not only is it sort of like long-term, where is your community going and do you like where it's going? And I would have to say, I have some concerns um, but also, I mean, these are my work colleagues have small children and they're not going to be able to, you know, potentially cover their normal workload. So then I will shift over to cover their workload. Right. Um, right. You know, it's and, you know, to the extent that people have to drop salary, that means they're their money available for buying groceries or engaging with local merchants drops. So yes. the local merchants have a drop the grocery, you know, everyone has a drop. The housing has a drop. I mean, it just, it just compounds and compounds and compounds. That's right. That's right. Um, our economic um, worries as well. Yeah. Well, Adrian, um, 
any final comments or do you have any um, thing you'd like to direct people to to look at or ways uh, to get in touch if they're concerned? Well, I uh, two things. I'll say my motto continues to be where there's the will, there's a way. Mm-hmm. And I challenge us as a community, as a state, to find the will to get kids back to school. Uh, and public school kids, right? Because until today, privates, at least in King or Pierce County, private schools remained open. Um, and But daycares are open. So if we can figure out, if we're okay with cramming 22 kids into a daycare setting, we've got to be okay with getting 15 kids into a classroom to educate them, okay? The second thing I will say is, <clears throat> I just, because so many people were reaching out to me and wanting to help and figuring out what they can do, I created a Facebook group um, and um, I would just direct people to that. I, um, it's not, I'm an, I'm an attorney, so it's not very sexy. The name (laughs) is Washington State Parents United for Public School Options. And so come, I literally just, you know, give me a hot minute. I just created it. Um, I'm still getting it up and going, but I'm just trying to create kind of an organizing platform where people can come and um, figure out what we can do to positively impact the results of this, you know, in addition to making sure that we're all doing our Um, you know, due diligence of, you know, staying home when we need to, washing our hands, wearing a mask, socially distancing, not, you know, doing the uh, reckless stuff that is, you know, keeping our numbers, um, you know, high and, and really reducing that transmission. I can't agree with that enough that we all want this um, to, to go away. We want the, uh, you know, we want people to be safe. We want to limit that transmission, especially among adults, you know? Um, and so we all need to do our best to make sure that we're not, um, that we're not, um, you know, undo unduly, uh, keeping, um, this pandemic going you know, right. but by engaging right. in reckless behavior. So mm-hmm. thank you for your time, Evelyn. Thank you so much, Adrian. I'm so really grateful. Thank you for covering this. I appreciate it. This is Nate Bowling, Alaska Air MVP and host of the Nerd Farmer podcast. There are three places I call home right now. The first is Tacoma, OBS. The second is Abu Dhabi, where I'm teaching for the next two years. And the third place I feel like home is on board an Alaska Airlines flight, sipping on Northwest beer and watching free movies. When you spend as much time on an airplane as I do, you come to appreciate the finer things that Alaska Airlines provides. It's because at Alaska, customer service comes first. I see it in all the little details that make the experience of flying better. Free messaging and free movies on select flights, and of course, that signature fruit and cheese plate. When I fly, I don't even look at the travel sites. I go straight to alaskaair.com and book. Thank you, Alaska Airlines, for your longtime support of Channel 253. Hi, this is Evelyn Lopez back on the air with our second half of Crossing Division. Uh, We are talking about whether to school or not to school. Uh, We had Adrienne Stewart in the first half talking about her reasons for wanting kids to have the option of going back into some kind of classroom instruction. And now we're going to talk with Tamara Jones, another friend of mine, about um, 
why she has some concerns about whether schools are ready and can be made ready for any kind of in-person instruction. And uh, uh, Tam is a good friend of mine who has uh, previously, until quite recently, worked at the State Department of Health and had also been working on doing some contact tracing for COVID-19. So um, she is a real go-to resource for me on what is up with this disease. So Tam, please introduce yourself and then I'm gonna ask you to start talking about um, what we know about COVID-19 and whether we know anything with regard to sort of um, kids in school and, and how things work. Okay, um, as Evelyn said, my name's Tamara Jones. I am here today in my capacity as a parent and family member of a, a number of Tacoma Public School students. My daughter is 14 and will be starting as a freshman at Stadium High School. Um, and she just completed uh, her schooling at Bryant Montessori where she has been since preschool. And my three, two nieces, I have two nieces who are at Bryant. Uh, one is a rising fourth grader and the other is a rising second grader and a third niece who is in her second year of pre-kindergarten at Stanley, um, and then a nephew who is 18 months old and just live in life. <laughs> so, um, well, I, mean, I was, was going to start you know, on the disease, but let me start with, with your daughter. Um, what are you expecting for her in September when school starts? What is that going to look like for a freshman at Stadium High School? We're still figuring that out. I mean, there's this COVID is a threat that something that we haven't seen, you know, globally in our lifetimes and previous generations lifetimes, you know, for a hundred years. And so we don't know. And the, the district doesn't know and the school doesn't know. And there's lots of, you know, all of the different systems that we have in place. There are so many levels where decisions have to be made. And then the next level can make their decisions based on what the previous level did and, and, and so forth. Um, so, I mean, I think that it's, it is frustrating. I think everybody right now is just frustrated because we are a society that's especially with, you know, smartphones and Google, we're used to getting answers quickly mm -hmm. and those answers just don't exist right now. Um, so for us, you know, we realized, end of June, beginning of July, you know, kind of started broaching the subject with our daughter about how we probably need to reorganize the house and restructure and set things up because best case scenario, you're going to be doing some sort of schooling from home this year. So let's, you know, the, the springtime was a triage. There was an emergency. We were just trying to make it through and get to the end and okay, we're done with that. But now this is going to be long-term. We don't know really what we're going to be, what it's going to look like, but let's take steps to deal with what we do know. So, you know, where's a comfortable place that has good Wi-Fi connection and a, a an established desk with important to a 14-year-old, good lighting for your web calls and, you know, things, things like that. And we're in a position where we're able to do that. You know, we're able to get a new desk and, you know, do, do all that and whatnot. Um, so as far as what we've chosen, we uh, are going with the remote. So, you know, there's the remote and the, the online. Um, we went with the remote because... 
Tell me what's the difference. I I had thought that remote was online. So well, they're both online. So I think it's remote and virtual, um, or distance learning, or whatever. So the remote is connected to the homeschool. So she is, you know, she is starting at stadium. So she will be taught by stadium teachers. She will have um, the students that are in her classes will be other stadium students, and she will be attending her classes on the traditional high school bell schedule. Okay. Okay. Then there's the virtual or the, I think it's distance learning, but the virtual program, which mm-hmm. Tacoma has stood up its own program um, on, on that. So that is completely there. That is not connected to a school. Um, I believe it will be taught by Tacoma public school teachers, but not, um, not necessarily, you know, when those kids, when those students transition back to school, they may not be with people that they've been going to cl- taking classes with and whatnot. Like, however, those pods are organized, um, mm-hmm. it'll be cl- students from other schools, teachers from other schools and whatnot. And that will not have a traditional bell schedule. So that could be, they might be taking their classes on the weekend or after, you know, after hours or, you know, like five o'clock, maybe that works better for the kids or, you know, the pandemic stress, the child's sleep patterns are just off. So getting them up for school at a 7.30 start time doesn't work. So something else, right? There's more flexibility to it. Let's see. When you were talking before we started recording, you were telling me about your sister, you know, who has four kids um, from Mm -hmm. baby up to, uh, was it a 10, 10 year old? 10 year old. Mm -hmm. And that she's going to be trying to sort of work with them around um, three different school schedules or three different. Yeah. So she, their household is mom and dad at home with four kids or mom and dad in the home with four kids. Dad is working remotely, so during work hours, he's not available. He's working. Um, So then she'll have a fourth grader, a second grader, and a preschooler um, that will all be in school. They also selected remote um, for because of the connection to the school. Mm -hmm. Um, That was, you know, important to the to the kids. Um, So because of the connection to the school, so they, you know, we're kind of just learning, I guess, that we'll be on the traditional. Um, I think that information was officially posted last night that we'll be on the traditional bell schedule, which I think is for some is creating some stress because now they're on the traditional bell schedule. So she'll have three kids at very different educational levels who are going to have very different needs um, all in quote in class at the same time. Um, so, you know, and what she experienced in the spring were, you know, technical issues, or if two kids are on webinars at one, you know, are on teams calls at one time at the same time, dad has a meeting. Is there enough Wi-Fi? Is there that right? She, and she says, you know, I'm fortunate that I'm a stay at home mom. So I'm not being pulled for, you know, we're not both trying to bounce working. I'm able to focus on the kids, but that's, that's a lot right? And to have a, a preschooler is going to require a lot more assistance. A second grader who has some reading, but maybe not a lot of reading. So we'll need help with instructions and figuring things out. And, you know, I mean, and a, and a fourth grader, I mean, it's just, it's, and then at the same time, trying to keep the two-year-old alive. Um, yeah. You know, it's just, it's, it's a lot. Um, but, you know, and 
they made their family choice. We made our family choice. But as we've talked as a, as a larger family unit and talking about this, you know, there's, there's this, this infectious threat that's out there, this invisible enemy for lack of a better word, that's out there that could make any of us very sick. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, could be potentially deadly to our mother or, you know, the kids, Nana, um, the kids just lost Papa last year. I mean, we want Nana for wanting Nana, but also the kids just lost Papa last year. Losing Nana would be a a catastrophic blow. Um, you know, and, and we have to take the steps to protect that and other older relatives that we have that we we touch base with and whatnot. And also there's the long term. You know, we don't know what the long term impacts of of the infection is. Right. And they're they're starting to see when it first emerged and people were saying, oh, it only hits old people. Kids are immune. Well, we're finding out kids aren't immune. They just it, it impacts them differently right now. They might have more and I should say they might, they might have more mild symptoms, um, but they also might not, you know, and I, it's, it's weird to me to hear our society, which is supposed to be this great caring society kind of saying, well, only old people die. Kids don't. Well, there's a lot more between, (laughs) between living life and being dead. There's, there's a lot of variations in there. And, you know, if you have a kid, I mean, we just, we've had with the, the, child from Puyallup last year, or I guess he wasn't a child, he was an adult, but a very young adult who, you know, was a double varsity letter, you know, and, and got sick was, and, and passed away. Like, it's just, it's catastrophic. And the kids who are, people who are surviving, we're now seeing it's not just a respiratory infection, but we believe there's impacts on cardiovascular systems. And what are these long-term impacts and how long are people going to be dealing with them? And it's the infection is, um, for better or worse, showing and highlighting a lot of other uh, problems we have with our systems. You know, our lack of adequate health care and nutritional services and how our health care really is focused on once you get sick, we're going to help you, but right. there's not a lot of preventative care and healthy living and all the disparities that go with that with, you know, to be able to have access to ha- be healthy living, you have to have access to good quality foods that mm-hmm. are across, right? And if you live in a food desert and that's not there and all you have access to is, you know, you either have to get in a car, which you don't have and go away or get on a bus, which may or may not be where you are and travel for a half hour to go grocery shopping and carry everything back and it's expensive. You know, it just, all of this is being highlighted right now because of this infection. Mm-hmm. Do you think, um, you know, with what you've sort of learned um, this year, do you think there would be a way for the schools to have the option of doing some on-site activities or some on-site instruction, or is it just, um, you know, and I'm thinking sort of because I know the private schools were either opening or, or at least, a, you know, attempting to open, you know, is there a way to, to sort of do a halfway measure, do you think, or, or is it just too overwhelming? So I will say I don't have all the information. I, I, don't, I don't even have all the information that our decision makers have. With the information that I have, with which really I don't know is a lot, I don't know how that is possible. Mm-hmm. Um, just because 
when you bring kids together in a classroom, let's say it's a private school, because I've seen this argument, you know, from friends on Facebook, it's a private school. uh, There's only 10 kids in the class. We can absolutely keep those kids healthy. It's fine. But, or like, you know, people who are starting neighborhood pods, you know, or whatever. The the concern I have about that is you don't know, that's 10 children that are in the classroom, which is double the five that we're trying to keep things limited to. They're in the classroom for, let's say, six hours a day. It's longer, but let's say six hours a day. And you have kids who are fidgety, who are moving, who are, but, but just looking at the numbers, those kids all come from, live with at least one other person. Most of them probably live with more than one other person. And then they're going to interact with, right. And it's one of these, it's this, this like spider web, you know, like you get the chip in your window and the crack starts going right. And it just spreads like crazy. And, um, you know, with this infection and it's just that there's the, the exposure risk is so, you know, and for teachers and paras and everybody, it takes so much more than teachers to get our schools running, right? There are so many different systems that come in to run our schools, but we don't know what their health considerations or systems are. We don't know who's at home with them. Do, are they medically fragile? Do they have, you know, medically fragile family members at home or a parent that they are sole responsibility for, or this, that, or the other. And it just seems like, to me, it seems like an, an unnecessary risk. Um, it, 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 there's just so much there, and I don't see how a school, and, and I do understand there are some school districts that are, you know, we're in Tacoma. We are in a big district. And there are other districts that are much smaller and much more nimble because they're smaller and they may have more resources and and this, that, and the other, that they're able to to bob and weave and respond faster, differently. Mm -hmm. I think in Tacoma, there are so many considerations because as I already mentioned with the health, you know, the healthcare system and how that's broken, because we have so many other systems that are broken the way our society has fixed that is we've put that all on the schools, right? The schools provide meals for kids. The schools provide, I mean, I think TPS from when school shut down until the end of the school year served over a million meals to kids. Mm -hmm. That's mind blowing to me. Um, Right. So we become a place of, you know, where we're providing, the schools are providing meals to kids. The, there may be kids who are getting, you know, PT and OT at school because that's where they can get access to it. I mean, that's a healthcare thing that, that mm-hmm. may or may not really need to be happening in the school building. Um, you know, there are other things, kids who have, uh, you know, so we've, I already hit on the food, uh, but, you know, or shelter issues, right? Where school is the place where they have a secure place where they're safe and out of the elements, you know, and, and that may be made bigger in a situation like a Tacoma school versus a a smaller school or a private school that, you know, is I think one reason of many why when our schools are shut down, it's so, it creates this rippling effect and stress. Um, when you were doing uh, some contact tracing work, what kinds of things were did would you hear where people either um, got the infection or spread the infection? Because, 
mean, so for me, it's just me and my husband and we've really kept ourselves away from everything. Um, and so for me, like, even if I hear someone is saying we got together with friends, to go for a walk, I'm sort of horrified, but, um, but I don't, but my standard of, of isolation may be, uh, quite different from the common person's, um, standard mm-hmm. of what is still safe behavior. Yeah. Um, so when I did the contact tracing three weeks, pretty early on in, in April, um, for the, through my role at the time at the state department of health, um, the way our health, our public health system in Washington works is it's done at the County level. So we were at the request of uh, five counties, we were helping them with their calls. So even though I was making my calls from my house, because I was working remotely in Tacoma, I wasn't making calls to Tacoma because Tacoma Pierce County is doing their own, their own contact tracing. Okay. Yeah. So you weren't really talking to local. So I wasn't talking to my immediate neighbors. Mm -hmm. Um, so there were a few things that jumped out, and I think this is one reason why, again, the, the, where our systems are broken is so highlighted to me. Um, I would guess, and I didn't do actual hard numbers, but I have been pretty open that about 85% of the cases that I called required interpretive services, um, and that was for six different languages. Um, so that was, it was extremely varied. I mean, and I think that just highlights, you know, we are a state that is, um, we have a lot of immigrants where we are a, a, an entry state and, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, that's the way it is. Um, some of the families that, that I, go ahead. Do you, think that's, do you think that we have not been very effective about getting sort of, um, prevention information out to non-English speaking communities or I mean, one of the things I know is there was an article in the New York Times a while ago or maybe in the LA Times about how the COVID just spread like wildfire through a, um, a border uh, area in Texas that was all very close-knit Hispanic families and it just it seemed like a lot of their um normal behavior that they had not been told not to engage in was very community oriented, you know, lots of um, large family parties, uh, large uh, events, and sort of, you know, culturally, I think that they were more susceptible because of all of the group activities than, um, than other people might be. I think it depends on how, how early the early was, right? Because, so I was making the calls, uh, like the second, third, and fourth week of April, roughly around mm-hmm. around there. So well, it was it was yeah. early compared to now, but mm-hmm. for Washington State, that wasn't necessarily early, mm-hmm. right? The schools were shut down around March 13th. We had our first positive January 20th. You know, I mean, it was so um, in speaking with the people, there were some, I, most everybody I spoke to was aware of, how we believe the infection spreads at that mm-hmm. time, you know, and there were people, as I was asking questions, you know, we had like the standard questions we would go through about, have you been here to this type of location, this type of location? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when, have you been to a, a place of worship, you know, mm-hmm. and people would be like, well, no, the churches are closed down and we're not supposed to be getting together. And I haven't been. So I think that message had gotten through. 
Um, I know State Department of Health, we put a lot of time and, you know, we, I can't remember how many languages we translate our, our information into, um, but it's extensive. And, you know, we try to work with communities and the, the DOH, the state DOH has had a big, and the locals, a lot of the locals that I've worked with over the past four years, put a lot of time and energy into community engagement. So when we have something like this happen, um, we can get the word out quickly. Mm -hmm. um, I think what we ran into is a lot of uh, the people that I spoke to might be in um, lower wage positions. So they didn't have a savings and felt like they, you know, had to keep working. Or there were some that I spoke to who were undocumented. So they felt they had to keep working because they didn't qualify for unemployment insurance, oh. um, you know, and, and things like that. Or just, you know, documented people who happen to be immigrants, but they, the way the, the culture is, you have four generations who are living together. So, mm -hmm. you know, you had a lot of bodies in a house that if somebody tested positive, it might be hard to isolate them just because of, you know, the lifestyle. Um, mm -hmm. And so those things culturally, I think did um, possibly, but I think also there were people who were, um, you know, I spoke to a number of people who were in the, like the central Washington valleys where they worked at meatpacking plants and things like that. And they were, you know, I'm trying to take the steps and I'm trying to do this, but the work situation is X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, and I know, you know, labor and industries and, and OSHA, OSHA have done, or, you know, OSHA has, or sorry, DOSH has done quite a bit to try to deal with that and, and yeah. get into some of those those areas and set things up and it's been it's hard right it's hard because employers are the systems and are set to do things a certain way and then now we're having to step in and mm -hmm. change how we're doing things and you yeah. know that costs money for employers as they're losing money because the supply chain is impacted and you know we we can't not only is our supply chain in impacted but our supply chain out is impacted and so i mean it's just it's hard it's hard. Yeah. Well, and this is, a, you know, very similar, as you said at the beginning, which is, you know, a lot of our societal issues, you know, you really see them and they're really compounded when you are facing a situation like this. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. People's, uh, you know, powerlessness in the workplace and, um, you know, how we put such a disproportionate burden of uh, essential services on um, people who may have uh, be at great risk for, for, you know, not having great healthcare benefits in the first place, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, back to the question of this, this, you know, back to the schools, like it's, I, I think it's just, it, there's, there's so much that goes into that, you know, and I know like as a parent, so frustrated with, you know, okay, my kid's asking me questions and, mm -hmm. and I'm fortunate, you know, my kid is older. So mm -hmm. we're able to sit and have a logical conversation about what's going on. Um, We've joked since the beginning, you know, being a, a, a former military family that, mm -hmm. you know, this feels like a deployment, right? Like okay. everything is shifted. Everything has changed. Life as we knew it yesterday will never be back to again. There's a threat that may impact our family at any time. It may not. There's only so much we can do to protect ourselves from that threat, but we're going to take those steps and do that. And stuff's going to happen and stuff's going to change. And we're just going to have to kind of roll with it, make decisions with the information we have 
for now and be willing to reassess and make a different decision if we have to. Um, you know, and that's kind of how we've been making making our decisions. You know, like we were looking at the hybrid model, which made me really uncomfortable. I was not open, to, really happy about the idea of her going to school. But, you know, the conversations between her and with her dad about the reasons why and, you know, sports are a big thing to her. And, you know, at the time it was if you did the hybrid model, sports and extracurriculars were an option. If you did the virtual model, they were not. Mm -hmm. That has now changed. So both the remote and virtual, you can't, that is an option if and when those are available right? Okay. The WIAA made some early changes where they split in, split the three high school seasons into four. Tacoma made the decision last week based on the information coming from Tacoma Pierce County Public Health and Dr. Chen to take all of where Tacoma will not have sports during season one. Those will all be moved to this new season three. Okay. So there's the sports are not even a conversation for this moment until November. Okay. So then they'll reassess closer to, I'm sure Tacoma Pierce County and Dr. Chen will have a lot to say about that. Um, I saw Dr. Chen came out with a statement today, you know, that was kind of a, no one should be going to school. Yeah. Um, you know, I know he doesn't take that decision, that recommendation lightly. He knows what that means. Um, that's, you know, so we're, we're, but we're making those decisions you know, kind of as they go, you know, we went with the, with the remote because she'll have, she'll be connected to stadium, which is a new environment for her, a new community. She'll be interacting with other stadium students, which is big for your freshman year of high school. So when they do start back, she'll have some familiarity, you know, points and whatnot. Um, but also then if and when we start back, you know, we can reevaluate then. If we decide as a family that it's too much of a risk, then maybe we go virtual, um, you know, but at the same time, I know nothing will be happening quickly, right? Tacoma has, I think when we were doing this, this random question came up when we were doing our high school open houses last year. And I think it was mentioned that Tacoma has like 11 or 13 different unions, right? So, mm -hmm. Everything that Tacoma, you know, the school board and the superintendent may want to do something and but they don't get to just make that decision themselves. Everything mm -hmm. is bargained. And there mm -hmm. are so many different layers where that where that gets bargained and all that type of stuff that that will slow the decision, you know, slow the enacting of decisions down, right? So once there's the green light to go back to school, it's not like we'll be back to school the next week. There, There's going to be a lot of conversations that are going to have to happen before that actually happens. What would you, Tam, if you were talking with other parents, what sort of things would you tell them or, you know, suggest would be um, things for them to think about as they're sort of facing this new um, period of uncertainty and learning at home? Um, I mean, we have these conversations, right? And I mean, pretty much everything I've said already is, is stuff, you know, one of the things is that I've had with conversations with friends across the country is, like I said earlier, you know, because I've had, when, when, 
San Francisco announced that they were going to be completely online. I had a girlfriend call from there, like in tears going, I just can't do this. Like, I just can't. And it was that reminder of, hey, look, what we did in the spring is not what we're going to be doing. This is still not going to be perfect, but it's going to be more deliberate. It's going to be more thought out and structured. And, you know, there are steps that we can take, even though there's a lot of uncertainty, steps that we can take um, to, to help set that up. Not everybody can take these steps. I say that recognizing I have the privilege of, you know, I, I work full time, my husband works full time, we're able to, to, you know, do that. But, you know, we can reassess things and set up like, here is where you will go to school. And here is how this will happen and getting on the, the you know, a, a pattern and a rhythm, you know, and I only have one child at home, it's going to be a lot who's older, it's going to be a lot easier for me to facilitate this, than it will be for people who have younger kids. Uh, the other thing that I have, the conversation that I've been having lately is from from what I've seen put out by, um, you know, mentioned from, from friends in education is we're all going through this. Everybody's going through this. So uh, we're all very concerned about our kids falling behind and our kids not being at grade level or even with their peers and, and whatnot. But the thing is, it's not like this is only hitting one family. You know, it's not like I have cancer and I'm going through something and that's impacting my kid's education. We're all going through this systemically, globally. So there's going to be different, you know, those inequities exist, um, right or wrong, those inequities exist, but we're all, this is hitting everybody. So the, for me, what I look at it is, I need her to be alive in 10 years. We can deal with whatever happens. You know, like I would say to my husband, who would go to combat, you do what you have to do to come home to me. We'll deal with the rest then, mm-hmm. right? My job is to keep her alive so that we can then figure out and connect to, okay, now we need to be spending more time on geometry because we missed that last year or, you know, that however we, whatever else we're going to have to deal with, and there's going to be repercussions and we're going to have to deal with things. But my job is to keep my family physically healthy and alive. And that's, that's how I'm trying to look at it. It's not going to be perfect. There's going to be mistakes. There's going to be frustrations and continue to be strong emotions. Um, but trying to just get through it. I think that's the answer, isn't it? I think we're going to end there because that's the best message you can give. Stay alive, do your best, be adjustable, be flexible, um, pay attention, and we'll see what happens next. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Tamara. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, this is our program this week. You've heard from one parent in Tacoma saying, I really need services for my kids and I'm really disappointed that the school's not working with me to get them. And another parent whose perspective is, you know, look right now, health and well-being is probably the only thing I'm going to focus on and we'll figure out the rest. Before we end, I just want to say to any parent who's listening to this, grandparent, aunt, uncle, family member, you know, this is a really hard time, and these are some of the more difficult decisions that we're faced with. What I would suggest is talk to each other. Talk to your friends and your family. 
and offer to assist. You know, if you if you have a way that you can help uh, either a friend or a family member um, by running some errands for them or helping out or even just um, having a telephone conversation when you know they need it, offer that up. Uh, we will get through this period of time. It will not be easy. Um, and if you have ideas either about this program or other programs, you know where to find me. You can email me, truetacoma at gmail.com, or find me on Twitter at true underscore Tacoma. That's it for this week. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. Crossing Division is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Citizen Tacoma, What Say You, and Gimme the Mic. This is Channel 253.